Faisal bin Zagar is a creative writer, consultant, and music journalist based in Saudi Arabia. He has a certificate in filmmaking from the National Film and Television School in the UK and has been actively involved in a number of projects across a variety of mediums, including recently delivering his first storytelling for video games course. He has a particular fondness for narratives that empower others, although his current work in progress is a bleak murder mystery or noir novel set in the Arabian Gulf. Welcome, Faisal. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We are very speaking? excited. Well, it's not I'm morning for you, right? It's middle of the afternoon or... It, it is in the middle of the afternoon, but I have a very important question before we begin. Am I now a story beast? By, You're a by legendary. You are a legendary. You're a, a legendary. legendary. Yeah. Okay. Yes. What's the distinction between the two? Well, the story beast is what uh, your the form that your your story can take, how it transforms you, how you work with story, maybe a variety of other things. It's pretty nebulous. And then the legendaries are experts in their niche in storytelling. So oh, you are oh, an expert. <laughs> well, that's very gracious of you. I, I don't know if I would classify myself as legendary, but thank you. It doesn't matter. We classify you. Yeah. We do have a Meet the Legendaries page, which you can have a look at on okay. our website and see all our other legendaries and you can meet their legendary beasts. I um I actually have heard um, rumors that you had a voice like Thanos, but we're a lot nicer. And so far that has been very true. Well, I'm glad I'm a lot, a lot nicer. Well, I never saw the Thanos comparison. It's a very cool one, uh, and, I, and I wholeheartedly embrace it, but I don't hear it so much myself. Mm. It was me. It was you, yeah. <laughs> I am super excited because I know very little about storytelling and gaming, and I know that you have a vast amount of experience in this. So I have a couple of questions about that, and I'm really interested to hear what your responses are going to be. So... My first question is, how is storytelling in gaming unique in approach and other considerations like depth, flexibility, and scope when compared to, let's say, film or inter other you know, interactive storytelling, um, like novels, for example, where you can choose an ending? Ooh, okay. So this is a really huge question, and I'll try and answer it very simply, and then maybe we can go into different elements of it. First of all, I, I don't know if it's the best way to look at it by, by comparing it to, you know, screenwriting, uh, novel writing, whatever, and lumping them in one category and gaming in another, because each of them has its own set of differences that make them unique. And I suppose, though, gaming does differentiate itself, differentiate itself more by being an immersive process of co-creation between a player who is experiencing the game and the story that's been woven around it. The other difference is that and maybe others disagree with me. This is my personal take on this. In a video game, even though the trajectory has been towards greater narratives and, that, and uh, video games now sometimes rival movies in terms of storytelling quality. But at the end of the day, my view is if a game is not fun, doesn't matter how good the story is, it'll fail because its purpose as a medium is primarily to be a game. Hmm. So to me, that's the biggest distinction. It, it necessitates a collaborative process between whoever's in charge of the storytelling and the game design in a way that perhaps you don't see in other mediums to that extent. All writing is a collaborative art. 
in film, that's certainly the case where the screenwriter has to factor in the role of so many other different people. But with video game writing, you are in a constant state of collaboration. And in my view, your role as the storyteller is secondary to the role of the other people making the actual game happen. It sounds kind of as if you view the players of the game as co-storytellers. I think, yes, that's a good way of, of looking at it. Sometimes that's the other mm-hmm. thing with video games is that there are so many different types of video games and the way story is told through them will vary significantly according to the type of game you're playing. So this is not directly answering your question, but I think it's important to bring in here. And it's a key distinction that I, I see between video games and other formats of storytelling. I haven't seen anything this elsewhere. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But with video games, you have two types of genres at play. You have the, the genre of the video game and then the genre of the, the story, even if that story is very superficial. So you could have a shooter game, which is the genre of the video game, but it's a horror. Uh, you could have a shooter game that's sci-fi. You could have a shooter game that's whatever. The, the point is you have these two different things. And I think intuitively we find often that some are more complementary. Mm. So to bring this back to your question, if you're co-creating the story as the player, it will depend, I think, also on the nature of the the game genre and also the story genre, because some have more room for co-creation than others. Uh, role-playing games, for example, are the most uh, notable example where, if done well, the player is an active participant in the storytelling process. Whereas some of the more basic platformers that are very light on storytelling don't really have a story being told even by the player. It's just a series of, it's a sequence of tasks being executed. So it really does depend, I think. And so I have a, a very just basic question because I've sure. never done any type of storytelling in video gaming before. And I'm thinking about it in terms of how you actually execute this. When you do the storytelling aspect of the game, are you thinking in terms of... I'm plotting out every possible avenue and giving players choices to make, or is it really a live kind of interaction between the company who makes this game, hires a bunch of storytellers, and as people play either offline or or online, this process is interactive? Are there just different levels of it and I'm mixing it all up in my mind? Or how does that work exactly? Because it feels like very much a a kind of mixing of plot and programming in the sense of, you know, when you program something and you give people a whole lot of different choices. And and that's why I was um, in my initial question thinking about how you have these novels where they're alternate endings and you give people the choice. If you did this thing instead of that thing, this would happen. And then that level of choice it was my way of making sense of the player or the the reader interacting with the storyteller. So how does that work exactly in gaming? Oh, well, that's a great question and another really big one. <laughs> so I'll try and uh, tackle it in, in chunks. I think the first thing you have to look at is the nature of the studio or developer building the game, because that is going to often dictate how the storytelling process is actually executed in a practical sense. So you'll often find indie studios where it's, you know, sometimes just this, just one person or two or three, a team of three people, and you don't have a designated storyteller. Each of them is tackling multiple roles in this process and how they choose to approach it will depend on whether the game is story driven or not. And 
that's the other thing. So I said earlier that in my view, a video game should first and foremost be fun, but it is very much the case that there are developers out there who set out to make a game with story at its core, that the, that it is driven by the story. So sometimes you may start with a story and then build gameplay elements around that. Uh, other times you may have the gameplay in mind first, and then you weave a narrative around it if you feel it needs one. Sometimes it might be sort of in between where you have a general idea of the kind of game you want to make and in what kind of world you want to set it, but you kind of work the details out as you go. There's a lot of variation in how this can be done. And I think the type of studio or the size of the team will often factor into that. So on the flip side, you can sometimes have these big AAA studios where regardless of whether the story was mapped out in the beginning or not, they will bring in dedicated staff to tackle that element of the game, either from inception or later on. And I think it's generally agreed that if the game is going to be narratively driven, it's better to have them come in earlier on. And I think this is a good time to introduce a concept called uh, narrative design. I don't know. Have either of you heard of that before? No, it, it no? feels a little bit like a plot thing. Like a plot? <laughs> narrative design. So... I'm going to talk about something that really has no concrete definition. There are a lot of variations on what this means, but typically the narrative designer is the person brought in to tell the story, but what distinguishes it from, let's say, writer in a, in a brief, let's say you're hiring and you want to put down the roles and the description for what that entails. The narrative designer exists at that intersection between storytelling and game design. Narrative design, the way I like to articulate it, and it's not going to be a unique take, but this is just the way I, I explain it. It is how story is expressed through game mechanics. So to elaborate further on that, there's an example I love to use, and I think it explains it very well. Before that, though, I like to look at storytelling for video games as being comprised of three elements. So you have element one, which is the story, the plot, the sequence of narrative events. Then you have narrative design, which is how that plot is expressed through gameplay. And then the third component is the writing itself. So inevitably, if you're going to have a story-driven video game, there will be either dialogue or text descriptions that pop up on different things. It can look like a lot of different things, but there will be a writing component involved. So narrative design, a great example I like to use. There's a a Super Mario video game called Super Mario Odyssey that came out in 2017, I think, for the Nintendo Switch. And if you look at the plot, the story, it is exactly the same as every single Mario that came before. It's the princess gets kidnapped by the beast and you have to rescue her by completing various platforming challenges. There's no difference there, but I think the game makes excellent use of narrative design. The way the game is structured, so mechanics-wise, is that you visit different worlds, you complete platforming challenges, or do like a, undertake a sort of treasure hunt. And at the end of these challenges or treasure hunts, you're rewarded with a moon. They call them moons. It's like literally a little moon that pops up. <laughs> and, and to achieve those, you have a variety of different things. And one of them that I like to, to reflect on is you're in this desert world and there's a sphinx. And the Sphinx in the desert world sort of acts as a fast travel mechanic because the level is so big. But if you take this Sphinx to an inverted pyramid that's floating in the air and have it rest on a pedestal, it tells you that 
this reminds him of a past life, but he's now since moved on and rewards you with a moon. And the moon is titled Sightseeing in the Past or something like that. But the point is, why I think this is great narrative design is that the mechanic plays into the storytelling. So you have this fast travel mechanic, but that was clearly created with its own backstory that you are given just enough of to help fill in this big world you're traversing. And there are so many examples like it that eventually stack up and end up creating this very immersive lived in world around you, even though you're really not absorbing much in terms of writing or kind of conventional storytelling. You're just playing a platforming game and through a combination of environmental assets, art design, uh, well-crafted but brief dialogue, you suddenly have this huge backstory going on and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really cool thing. So I just, I like to use this example because it highlights that writing and storytelling look a particular way in video games. And I think this is a good way of, of showcasing that. Okay, this is making me really excited because I feel like <laughs> you've touched on some aspects of what it means in good storytelling, maybe without an intentionally meaning to do so. But one of the things you said was there's nothing different about the actual story itself. It's And this is something we've talked about before in terms of people do retellings and it doesn't matter that you say I'm doing this retelling of story X. People have certain expectations and it boils down to how is it different? What is the experience? And I think the experience itself is the thing that pulls people towards story. So I feel like what you're talking about here is that level of immersion, that level of not noticing the actual story itself that's happening, but being so absorbed in it that you're kind of living it. I think that is applicable to all types of good storytelling, right? So I totally agree. If you're not noticing, but you're just living it, or you're just playing the game, or you're just reading the book or watching the film and not seeing all of those things, and then thinking afterwards, wow, that was really great. Maybe not even dissecting why it was good. And then afterwards, we have discussions like this and start picking apart. And you you got to point out that, yeah, true. Yeah, but in that moment, the experience is so immersive that you forget all of the things that you're looking out for as a storyteller to try to identify why is this good because you're so swept up. True. And just to add to that, I think more often than not, the more subtle you are at achieving that, the better. Like, I mean, it makes the, the biggest difference when you play, again, using games as an example on trying to think if there's ever been a platformer comparable to Mario that I played that I didn't like. None come to mind, but I just, as an example, if I were to play a similar game that didn't put in that subtle world building effort, even if the platforming mechanics are great, I may not be able to pin it exactly, but I I might go, you know what, this isn't as fun. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. in the moment, I might not realize that the reason for that is because I'm not immersed in the world in the same way. So now I'm kind of contradicting myself where I said earlier that if it's fun, that's the the key thing. Maybe story does, after all, have a potential to elevate even something that is fun at its core to something better. Yeah. Or or at least to have some level of balance so that you're not noticing the missing aspect or element. I have to ask, Faisal, do you watch Mythic Quest? Mythic Quest? I know. Is that a TV show? Yes. Um, And um, it is uh, essentially about a, um, we'll say like a gaming company. And so there's all the different people that are involved in games and you get to, I mean, they have their own interactions and stuff, but uh, they're... 
there's like arguments, for example, about um, to put in a certain artifact and how players are going to interact with that artifact and how, you know, maybe the narrative team might really want this artifact in there, but then the players are going to be doing a certain thing that they don't want them to be doing in there. And um, so anyway, I think um, it could be of interest potentially. Oh, it sounds awesome. No, absolutely. Where, where can I watch it? I think it's on Apple TV. I want Apple to say. Okay, yeah. I'm write that down right now. Mythic Quest. I've helped. I'm so glad. Cody's <laughs> <laughs> well, always trying to get me to watch great. TV stuff and I, and I never do it. <laughs> I was just trying to get, um, actually, so this is game related. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to bring it up. I just started watching uh, this anime called Romantic Killer, which is a dating sim in a way, but it's, oh, uh, but it's, you know, it's an anime and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'll say, but it has lots of these different tropes that as a viewer, as a, a romance reader, I love, but also mm-hmm. if you've ever played like a gaming, a gaming simulator, it is based off of that, which is interesting. So do you ever, do you ever do dating sims? They are so fun. Uh, you know, I think I tried one out once ages ago, but uh-huh. I not recently. Okay. I should though, because as as far as like honing your craft, you you guys know this, I'm sure, in, in your respective kind of fields, you always need to absorb as much as you can from everything, even if it doesn't seem directly relevant to your genre or your whatever, because you can always learn something interesting and you can kind of cannibalize it and apply it in your <laughs> own way. So I'll definitely, do you have any you could recommend that you think are really fun? I haven't played any recently, so I'm going to completely date myself. Um, But I, in college, I do it all the time. Great. Perfect. All right. This is, this is a club now. Uh, I played Mystic Messenger in college and I'm not sure if it's still around, um, but that was something that I loved. It it is, it's intense though, because you've got to, you've got to message these boys and make sure that you, they know you're into them. (laughs) So I have no idea what's happening right now. So I'm learning about a whole new world. And also just kind of a side note here, mythic quest, mystic messenger. There's a, there's a pattern emerging. You're right. You're right. I will have to investigate. Let's make it three for three. Your your third recommendation. With an M. Yeah. Or a mystery. It's building. The M of the mystery though, or the alliteration. It could be any of the three. Oh my gosh. I'm going to crumble under pressure. We've we've put her under pressure now. (laughs) Okay. I'll I'll think of something, uh, but let's continue. This was a a, a nice, um, a nice dip into dating Sims. I I know everyone wanted to hear about that. (laughs) So this is not relevant to dating Sims. You made me think of something else. There's a genre of game called interactive fiction, Mm. uh, which Habiba, you referred to those kind of pick your own adventure stories. It's sort of like that. And it's got a very small but extremely dedicated following. And you have different versions of that. And some of them are more complex than others where you actually have RPG-esque stats coming into play. So certain choices you make endow you with points in whatever trait the game offers. So usually those are just text-based. They don't have visuals. They're very much like living a book. I think that's a interesting way of putting that, especially if it's written well. And then you have kind of a spin-off of that, which does have visuals called the visual novel. And that's very popular in Japan. You made me think of that as well with the, the whole dating scene, because that's a very predominantly Japanese 
genre, isn't it? The, the kind of the dating dating sims. I think so. At least the ones that I've encountered. They were right. So, so these visual novels will have various degrees of interactivity. Some of them definitely lean more towards traditional gaming experiences, but ultimately they're much more narratively guided experiences. So I think this is probably the best example of a type of video game that almost always will start with the plot in the story and then work the mechanics around that. They are storytelling vehicles at heart. They're not as much about the gameplay. Mm-hmm. There's actually a, I mean, you guys know Digimon? Now I'm dating myself. No, I know There's, Digimon. I know Digital Digimon. Monsters. I've heard of Digimon. Digital Monsters. Digimons so, are yeah. the champions. They're, yes. <laughs> so they, <laughs> we're all dating ourselves now. Oh. Uh, a visual novel called Digimon Survive, either late last year or early this year. And it was a nightmare to get my hands on. I don't know why it was so difficult, but I did. And I'm looking forward to playing that because it's apparently a blend of visual novel, uh, kind of under the survival horror genre. They pivoted into darker territory with this and characters have permadeath. So if you mess up, they're gone for good. Mm. And it's essentially a visual novel intercut with tactical combat, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but those are those are a style of game, usually overhead camera angle, you have your your warriors, your combatants, and you position them strategically across a board and execute attacks and so on. So the game is apparently a blend of those things, uh, very story driven, but has some conventional video game elements to it as well. So we're all going to leave here today, hopefully enriched with uh, suggestions of things to read and see. Already so much. Habiba yesterday sent me a book to read and oh my God, it looks so good, but I don't know when I'm going to get to. What was it? I'll read it first and then I'll tell you. Okay. Okay. Clara and the Sun. What was it called? Clara and the Sun. Okay. It's to do with a a sentient AI, which is relevant to the the NaNoWriMo piece. Project you have going on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited. Can you you talk a little bit about, uh, maybe uh, let me know, Gabby, if um, we should go back after I ask this question, but um, how your... Uh, expertise in games actually transcends into novel writing and all the other types of projects you do? Because I know Gabby gave a whole list of awesome stuff that you do. So if you could say a little bit just about that bridge and how these different modalities of storytelling affect each other, I'd be so curious. Okay, sure, yeah. just tag a little, a teeny little piece to that question. Yes. Um, I know that you said one of your favorite aspects of storytelling is boldness. And we just mm. talked about how sometimes you can't be as bold with the storytelling aspect in gaming. So maybe if you can incorporate that into your comment on Courtney's question. Okay, well, just I'll answer that first, because I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. The way I look at it is for every medium, Habiba, you know this, unfortunately, you have an industry built around it. And there are sometimes very good reasons for the industry conventions that exist and sometimes not so good reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're financially uh, driven at the expense of artistic expression. And my view is that within each industry, boldness is limited in its own way for one reason or another. So whether or not you are bold in the way you express your story comes down to how much you're willing to push versus whether you find collaborators who think the same way you do and are willing to support you. So just to clarify, I don't view video games as necessarily being any more restrictive when it comes to boldness and storytelling than novel writing or that barrier comes from more the industry, I think. And I don't, yeah, there are some really bold and financially successful 
examples of storytelling in video games. Have you heard of uh, Hideo Kojima? I'm so sorry if I'm butchering the name. Mm-mm. He created the Metal Gear Solid franchise, which uh, very unconventional in the way it approached the spy genre. And most recently, he worked on a game called Death Stranding, which came out shortly before the COVID lockdown. And the game is a, is a bit scary in the way it was sort of gleaning the future, you could say, but it takes place in a post-apocalyptic America that's under a sort of lockdown. I'm not doing this justice, by the way, but the, the game is essentially a walking simulator. You, you are basically an Amazon delivery employee, not Amazon, but you are delivering packages across the wasteland that is the United States. And that's the game. And there are, of course, other elements that come into it, but it was controversial because this was a game driven by the narrative this guy had in, in mind. It is very much a narrative-driven game. It's very layered, very wild. And he created a gameplay mechanic that serves the story in this case. And some people really liked that and others didn't. And yet he continues to enjoy the support of industry titans like Sony and he's regarded highly overall. So that's just an example of of boldness and storytelling in mm-hmm. video games. I do think that when you kind of plant yourself in the middle of something and say, you know, I'm not going to sway either way because I'm afraid that if I go in the one direction, I'm going to lose the other extreme of my potential support. But when you plant yourself in a position of boldness and just own it and go for it, I think (laughs) maybe not even only in storytelling, but in any aspect of life, the people who are going to support your work and what you put out are people who are going to be enthusiastic about that because you've taken a very strong stance anyway. So I love the whole topic of boldness. I love it in storytelling and I love it in in every aspect of life because I think it says a lot about somebody's character. It can say a lot about your own characters and it can be the force that kind of pulls an audience around a certain narrative or Mm -hmm. whatever type of story you're putting out there and helps to propel them forward in a way that's almost a type of leadership when you're you're bold in what you tell. Is my take. I see it. No, I see that. And that opens up a whole other thing, too, about what is boldness, right? Like, boldness, in my view, doesn't have to be necessarily loud either. Yes, exactly. So I think that's not, not, not you, but people in general may hear the word bold and assume, you know, in your face, which mm-hmm. it absolutely does not have to be. And sometimes you can work boldness into sort of conservative structures that appease these industries that are very much tied to certain ways of doing things. And it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting area, but I like that point you made about it being a a form of leadership almost. I'd never thought of it that way. And it's true. If you persist and you remain, this is the other thing. It's tricky sometimes to avoid being stubborn in service of being bold, right? Because if you're failing, If someone is failing at something repeatedly and has convinced themselves that entirely this is due to being different and pushing boundaries rather than perhaps there being something legitimately wrong in their process or something that doesn't resonate with anybody, you have to have that self-reflection and self-honesty too, I think, in order for the leadership component to kick in. Because the leadership component, as you're talking, I'm thinking it's more about people believing in you and what you have to say and the truth of what you have to say. And that only exists if you're reflective and you're willing to grow and change and adapt where there are gaps. 
Yeah, I think that so much of that can interact with other values, I think is kind of what you're even saying here is um, for me, when I when you were talking about boldness, the word that came up for me was alignment and um, acting in alignment in the face of uh, other powers that be. And so much of that, if boldness, if you have boldness without empathy, then it really is something else. You know, and so I think with all of these connections at play, that's where the alignment comes in. I think it so much has to do with what are your core values as a human, as a storyteller, all of those things. And then what kind of um, in, in, in how to act in alignment out of those values. Where they came up for me was honesty. Mm. So I feel like if you're going to be bold, you have to be bold in, in the sense of how am I being honest in my storytelling? And not try to make choices based on what you think people will like, but being honest in, in where you're going with it. And then it comes back, uh, Faisal, to what you were saying about how do you get around the stubbornness in a way. And I think when you're being honest in the delivery of what you're putting out, but also being honest with yourself and being able to then go back through that process of reflection, then I think boldness can play out in a way that can work in favor of your story and in favor of you as the storyteller, so long as in all of those layers, you're bringing in that level of honesty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that for me, people relate to in storytelling the most, you know, why do we connect with characters? Why do we connect with certain plots? Why do we connect with just any type of narrative? Because we find an element of truth that we can relate to in any of those things. And it might be that later on that truth changes for you. And then I think that's still fine because as long as you're honest, as you go through that process and remain so, with your storytelling, then it feels like it comes from a place of growth and, and dynamics in storytelling. This is, I'm, I'm going way off topic, but this no, is- No, no, but I, I love it. It's true. And, and I'm, I'm thinking as you're speaking about what boldness means to me on a, on a deeper level. And I realized as you were, as you were speaking, that something I do when I'm fine tuning something I've written, when it's done, it's drafted, it's been through several rounds of revision, and I'm looking at it for what it is and trying to assess whether or not it's ready and whether it's where I want it to be. A question I'll often ask myself is, is this great? And then how I answer that is whether or not it's actually saying something of value to me. Mm. Is it actually communicating in clear terms something that means something very deeply to me? And if the answer is no, it needs work. So it, it's not exactly what you were saying, but it ties into that whole honesty thing, too, because it requires from me, I think, exceptional self-honesty in order to, to do that. And because sometimes that will result in you fundamentally changing something or discarding it entirely. And that's not a that, that usually doesn't happen, but it, it, it could. So I have a, uh, just a follow up question for that. Does this happen for you in stages where you, you put your work aside, you come back, you look at it and you say, is it saying what I wanted to say? Or do you have a very much sort of structured set of questions and you give the work to somebody else and then you get it back and you check if they are taking the message the way that you intend for it? Because when I tell a story and I have a certain intention, not everybody is going to see that in what I write because, you know, everybody comes to a story with their own, sure. with their own lens. So we have to write for ourselves and we have to write for our ideal audiences and hopefully your ideal audience is you because if, if it's not, then I guess there's always going to be a, a disconnect between what you put on the page and what's inside. inside so yeah. 
how do you personally navigate that aspect of knowing when you're ready and you know judging for yourself then is it genuinely judging for yourself or do you incorporate feedback that that is such a tricky process and to answer the question i would i typically do sort of both in parallel i do care what people are taking away from my work but there are different layers to that as well so you can have a thematic truth that your work is trying to communicate and then there are more specific plot points or character points that you're trying to communicate and for me i tend when it comes to the viewpoint of others who are reading my work i tend to place more emphasis on whether or not the thematic truth is coming through if a reader perceives a character in a particular way or a plot point a little differently than i intended usually that's okay for me provided it's not grossly off in which case i question whether i am doing a good job with what i'm trying to do like because i don't mind there being room for interpretation and yeah and and subjectivity but if for example i've written a character that i specifically intended to be likable and everyone hates them there's a problem right <laughs> That's an exact, that's a very, I think everyone has faced this, every writer has faced this, usually with their protagonists. It's funny how that is. Uh, I think we get too caught up in making likable supporting characters and we just assume because the main character is sort of our mouthpiece in this world that we are coming through them, but that's not always, a, that's not always the case. I love that because I read one of your novels where you, um, so I, just for everybody who's listening, Faisal and I are critique partners, and I have a, a little um, insight into into some of his work that's not out there yet. And you wrote a character who you wanted to be unlikable, and I absolutely loved him. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like you, Gabby. <laughs> Although in that case, it wasn't especially problematic for me, because by the end of the book, though you may, I don't remember exactly now what your final assessment was. But I think you definitely recognize that this is a shitty person overall. So, oh yeah, but I still, I still loved him. No, that's okay. That's all. I, right. I understood from the start that he was shitty, but I was just like, I am, I'm here for it. Well, this is actually great. This is a great uh, example that supports the point. Uh, that's great. So I intended for the character to be shitty, but you, you ended up loving the character. But you recognized that the character is shitty, which is the more important thematic point. So if I make a a lovably terrible character, sure, why not? It wasn't my (laughs) I'll I'll embrace it. That's okay. I might be just the person outside of the norm there. Though, no, I'm trying to think. So you're the only person who's read that kind of more developed draft. The first draft that was much worse, I think had a similar... As, as first drafts are, I'm trying to remember what people said about the main character. They they, they rooted for him. That's the thing. They did, uh, which okay. I suppose is a good thing, even if he's a terrible person, because you want your protagonist to be the character you're even grudgingly rooting for. So Yeah, you kind of, you need people to be invested to keep invested. Them, right? that's, so. that's the word for it. Yeah. And I realized... In all these great discussions just now, I didn't answer Courtney's question about... I was just about to say, I hijacked uh, your question entirely. I'm sorry, Courtney. (laughs) To reiterate the question, just to make sure I understood and didn't forget. You're asking how the storytelling process, in my experience, writing for video games, translates over to other mediums, what the crossover is? Yeah, I think we could go with translates. Also, I mean, 
I'm honestly, I'm having a visual moment where I'm imagining a spider web and then you're at the center of it. And then all of these other little strands are your modalities of storytelling. And I'm just curious what the overlap is, what connections sure. you see, that sort of thing. So we can go with translation. We can go with spider, whatever. I like spider. Spider is cooler. Great. <laughs> yeah, we'll, do well, then let me very briefly, I think this will be helpful, clarify how this web got spun. I always loved writing as a kid, and I would write picture books and, and that kind of thing. And it's something I didn't give up. I attempted a novel when I was 10 years old. I actually still have it. It's handwritten on, on paper. And I want to see at some point. I'm going to circle back to this because there's something very interesting about Wonderful. that. To Wonderful. That. Well, yeah. All right, continue. <laughs> in high school, I wrote poetry predominantly, although I called it lyrics because I was too cool for poetry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I spent most of my time doing. And then when I was around 18, 19, I decided to tackle that book from when I was 10 as an adult. Mm. So I spent a couple of years working on that. And that was my first book. And I released it on Smashwords for free. And I remember my dad wanted to read it, but he wouldn't read anything virtually. He wanted a hard copy. So I went and printed him out a, a, a copy and he had already gone to bed. So I was just kind of flicking through it and realized I'm way too ashamed to show this to my dad. I took it, Smashwords, and shelved it. <laughs> I was like, no way, no way. No. And then kind of got caught up in the corporate world. Though on the side, I was beginning to work on the book Habiba eventually read a, a version of. And then I decided to pursue writing as a, as a professional. I, I don't want to say seriously, because I think you can write seriously, but not professionally. You mm -hmm. don't, the two are not tied. And I respect that. I respect that some people don't want to make a living off their writing and they do it for themselves. Maybe they don't even have other people read it. That's just as valid. But I wanted to make a pivot away from the corporate world and to do this full time. So the first step towards that was actually music journalism. It was the first opportunity that came my way. I used to write for a website called Everything is Noise, who are terrific, by the way. I'm just going to shout them out right now <laughs> to anyone listening. They are, I, I don't write for them anymore, but I still follow them. They're terrific and they cover all kinds of genres. And my work with them was pretty varied. I would do uh, album reviews and artist interviews and different types of long form pieces. And then what came next? Man and Violet, which is the book Habiba read. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to finish this now. And, and then things just started coming my way. I, I helped a friend edit her book. And then she recommended me to someone else who was looking for a ghostwriter. Mm. So I collaborated with this client on their novel, which is now out there in the wild. I'm, I'm very pleased to say I never imagined the first published piece I'd ever write was something not under my name, but life is weird that way. Well, congratulations, and, though. Mm -hmm. That's thank you. Yes. A very big achievement. Yes. Then I decided to do part time study in film because the, the movie industry in Saudi Arabia, for those of you listening, I am based there. My dad is Saudi. And in the last few years, there's been this massive change socially where all the arts, it's funny because you hear typically people complaining elsewhere that the arts are undersupported, underfunded, whereas here that's the opposite. It legitimately is viewed as a top priority. Video games, movies, even music. It, there's a lot of government money going into these things. 
So I ended up applying for a scholarship to study at the NFTS and uh, was accepted. So the government uh, funded my my studies and that led me to writing for stage. There, Through one of the, my classmates, I learned that there was a contest at Ithra, which is an art center in the east coast of Saudi Arabia. So I wrote a play and I sent it to them and it was accepted and uh, met a wonderful director named Hussein Zabiri, who is based there. And he and his team, who were primarily improv, tackled my dark and twisty work and brought it to life on stage, which was also a great joy to be able to go and see. Meanwhile, I was working with a, an old friend of mine on his video game. He worked on a game called The Shepherd, which is out now. Another shout out, Muhammad Hashim, <laughs> The Shepherd. It's a fun game. It's sort of a farming simulator that's it's doing it an injustice there but there are you're a shepherd out in the desert and you are raising sheep and you can breed them to get different strengths and weaknesses and you're questing across different regions of the desert as you do this and you can race them it's it's a lot of fun so i will I play out, that i will play I'll, that i'll link it to you I'll please do please do I didn't actually, funnily enough, I didn't strictly work on narrative for that game because it's a very narratively light game. And he was all he was on top of what was there. I was more a design consultant to help him optimize gameplay. We also did another game that isn't out yet. We demoed it, which is very story heavy and which I have finished the story for. And that was an interesting process. I know I'm kind of going off topic, but this is a fun story. I believe uh, in it's you. Not, it's not off topic. Anyway. I believe in you. <laughs> it's all good. I'm here for it. <laughs> all right. Well, it's actually kind of a sad story, too. The two of us were in lockdown separately. It was 2020, summer 2020. And we decided to participate in a game jam online, which is usually like you got a little window of time and you have to make a playable video game. And then it's judged by a panel and then you win prizes or whatever. So he and I and my younger brother got together on Zoom and we're like, we're going to make a video game. And they gave us a prompt and the prompt was a losing control. And we're like, what can we do that, you know, caters to our respective strengths? My brother's a musician. So he was handling the soundtrack and the, the sound design and all of that. Um, Hamad, my friend, is a, he codes and I'm a storyteller. So what we decided to do was create sort of a visual novel-esque kind of game that would be text heavy that I could kind of carry with uh, my limited coding skills. And he would code different gameplay elements around it. And what we came up with in the end was a game about a farmer who gets swallowed by a giant desert lizard, kind of like a Godzilla-esque beast. And the game is you, you kind of begin in the monster's stomach <gasps> and you have to escape through its mouth. Oh my God. <laughs> but in order to do so, yeah, no, no, it, it gets wilder. So each level you are confronted with a challenge. If you pass the challenge, you get to recruit one randomly generated character. And you need, I think, five surviving characters to successfully open the monster's mouth. Now, this is where the losing control comes into it. Each of the characters we came up with is coded to sabotage you in some way. Oh my God. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Where do we play? Where do we play? I want to play this. Where is it? We, I'm so glad you're enthusiastic about it because I keep telling him we need to polish this thing and put it out yeah. there. We're all busy. But it's not out there? I'm so mad what? about that. This is, okay, so this is rude. <laughs> it's a, I'm doing a disservice to everybody, but I'm glad you, you have given me the motivation to push him to prioritize this with me. So we could, it's, it really is almost done. It's playable. It just needs some fine tuning and better okay. art. Okay. Send us uh, his email and we can, uh, we can harass him. Love it. You know what? I'll, I'll 
I'll do just that. Mohammed, if you're yeah. listening to this, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for what I'm about to do. <laughs> but um, so just to give you an example of what ways they would, like, so the game looks like you being, it describes to you where you are and what's happening. And then you're given a scenario. And I went wild with this. Like I created the whole ecosystem of parasites living in its stomach that included oh. talking unicorns and all kinds you of things. Bold, is what you're saying. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so like, you were so- in alignment. <laughs> Honesty. This is being honest to myself. <laughs> I, it's like, I'm, if I'm writing this thing, I'm going to write it the way I want. Oh so my you gosh. Have one challenge where the unicorns attack you while you're camping, and then you have to make a decision on how to deal with them. And you're given four choices, and you're making your choices. Whoever is on your party currently, their powers of sabotage activate. So one character is called the top, and he just starts blabbing text all over the screen as you're trying to read and make your decision. <laughs> And then you have another character called the liar who will add like fake choices that if you pick result in insta death. So you have different things like that going on and getting five of them to survive to the end is such a challenge. And there are different oh, endings. I love and it. The stakes are so high. I love it. I, I love know. It. And the setting there is incredible. <laughs> I, and I love like there's basically like what, like parasites essentially inside the stomach. Yes. And That's other incredible. people. Yeah. But uh, so to did you say parasites people, and other people? Yeah. So other people have been swallowed along the way. Have formed. I just like lumped those together in my house. I, I did yeah, too. <laughs> That's true. At that point, you kind of become a parasite. Mm. It's philosophical. It is. It is. That's what So we had two days to finish this game, Jen. We succeeded. We we created this game in two days in a playable form. And then we went to upload it. And the time limit closed. And we realized that the version we uploaded was not compatible with their software. Oh no. <laughs> so oh. after all of that, the judges didn't even didn't even assess it because they couldn't play it. Well, it's you know what? It's fine because we just assessed it. We yeah, that's true. Trade, and we think you should put it out there. Yes. I, I totally agree and I appreciate the show of support. And I'm going to leverage that to get this out there. I love that. Thank you. I really do want to play that. I'm very into that. <laughs> it's, nice to, it's nice to hear some external validation. I think only two people have ever played it other than the three of us. Mm-hmm. So, And then they enjoyed it, but uh, we haven't touched it in so long. Uh, we didn't really do any. After the game jam, I ended up writing more levels for it, essentially, and more characters. I basically fleshed it out more. The code already exists, so it's a simple matter of just incorporating the additions and then getting an artist to add some visual flair. But uh, So that whole detour was in service of another question, which is the the web that was being spun. So that happened, all those things happened, and then what ended up happening with the video game writing course or storytelling course was I was approached by a company called Astro Labs to essentially curate a storytelling for video games module for an incubator that was taking place in Riyadh. And this incubator was being executed by a company called Digipen, who are were like video game designers and educators, and they have different institutions around the world. And it was being funded by the government. And you had a great cross section of participants in this. You had young, old, professionally established, fresh out of college, a huge range, but all bound together by their love of video games. And they 
came into this incubator program not knowing each other. They got divided into groups. And the purpose of it was to produce basically, I think, three or four studios ready to go with uh, the capability of developing and launching a game within two years. But Astrolabs realized as the program was underway that they, they would benefit from a storytelling component because it was very technical. The, I think the assumption was they could come up with whatever stories they want, but they decided, no, let's bring someone in to teach them about story and, and all of that. So I, I went in and yeah, it was really, really fulfilling workshop. And then I continued on with them virtually in, in one-on-one mentorship. And they were a really bright group of people. A lot of them already had fantastic uh, story ideas for their games. And my role was essentially just to familiarize those who weren't already with storytelling fundamentals and then to help them individually optimize how their stories were being expressed through the gameplay they already had developed. Because all of them at that point knew the kind of game they wanted to make and what the core mechanics of their games were. Many of them had bare bones stories in place. Others had stories, but weren't sure how best to express it in the game. So that's what I did with them. They were so engaged. And what was fulfilling about this, I was, I'm not going to say reluctant to take this on. I was excited to, but I had concerns about teaching. I didn't know what to expect. I've never been in a position before where I'm teaching anything. And I've heard stories from I, I, my mom was a teacher for a long time. I know it can be challenging, but what I wasn't expecting, and I suppose I should have seen this coming. This is a group of people who wanted to be there yeah. uh, to support them doing something they love. So they made it so easy. Uh, I just wish I had more time with them. Honestly, that, that really is like, it would have been awesome to continue on, but they're all doing great. Uh, many of them have now established their studios and I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with. But yeah, that, so that that's the web, uh, more or less. And I think I've covered the essentials there. Oh, one more thing. Really cool. I don't know where it's going to go, though I have a lot of faith in it. The last, I would say, six months, I've been working with a local director. Her name's Lana Gomosani. She's super cool. Just shouting her out as well. She, just a very brief background on her. She came back to Saudi having studied abroad, I believe in drama or teaching drama, something very specific to do with the world of theater, if I'm not mistaken. And there was no opportunity at the time here for her to kind of work in that field. However, with the changes now, she's like a go-to acting coach for the government, for the Ministry of Culture. So she teaches acting to aspiring actors and she's directed a few short films and is very keen on pivoting into kind of a full-length feature film. And she brought me on to write the script for her movie. She had like a one-page outline that she gave me full creative license to do with as I please. And I'm almost done with what I hope the final draft, and with, the, with, with what I hope will be the final draft. And it's... An interesting case where I was confronted with that whole honesty, boldness question. The first draft was great, and we we gave it to someone to read who has experience in the film industry here, who liked it overall. But there was this, this thing that was missing. And what was interesting about this, one of the points we got, one of the points of feedback, was that there was a scene in particular, just to pause there, give you a very high-level overview of what the movie is about. It's about a guy called Badur who lives in Jeddah, where I'm from, in modern times. And it's 
essentially a coming of age story, but it explores addiction specifically to Captagon, which I think is fentanyl. We have a we have a bit of an epidemic of that here. And it's something that's not talked about a lot in I mean, it, the news covers it. It's not that it's not talked about, but there's still sort of a a residual shame-based aspect to the culture that means a lot of people who need help don't talk about it. it it's, a, it's a big issue. So we decided to tackle this in the film. And in one of the scenes, he goes to a very wild party, a uh, bit, bit sordid, actually. And the feedback we got was at this party, I mean, what kind of party is this? This doesn't happen here. When in fact it does. I know for a fact it does. And then we, we had to think about this. How are we going to handle this when we do the next draft? So as I was working on the second draft and incorporating various changes, I asked myself, is this movie great as is? And the answer I came up with was no, because it isn't true enough. Yeah. So I agreed with Lena that we're going to double down on that scene rather than shy away from it and be even more brutally honest about different things. And even if the majority of the local audience rejects it, that's fine, because at least it's true. And uh, I don't know when this movie will be out. I'm hoping to finish the script by next month. Then we're going to submit the pitch deck to different, you know, studios, producers, try and get the funding for it, which there is a lot of now. So I'm optimistic. And there is an eagerness also from top down to to explore touchy social issues more than more than before. So I'm I think I think we'll get there. But yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that because it's been taking so much of my time the last couple of months. It'd be weird if I didn't mention it. I love that you kind of brought it back to honesty, because I think in storytelling, when we can reflect and look for ourselves, what it is that we want to put out into the world and be able to come back to that and answer for ourselves that question, you know, what am I trying to say? And is that going to be okay if people don't accept it? Right. Then yeah. it kind of gives a compass for us as storytellers to be able to to answer our own questions of how do I move forward? Is this the right thing to do? Incorporating that level of honesty for me anyway has always been the answer to that. No, totally agree. So I, I have one more question for you before we do the the fun wrap up questions. We talked a little bit about your your music journalism and I wanted to know how does music influence story choices in gaming when story developers are considering how the game unfolds and how can it be used most efficiently and when should it take a backseat? Well, that, okay. To clarify before I answer any of that, this is a little outside of my domain or my experience, let's say. So I can't answer, I think, in very much detail. I can offer my personal experiences and speculation. Uh, we value so your personal experiences. <laughs> yes. My personal experience. All right. Well, I can I can tell you that at least, okay, so let's take Desert Blood, the game that remains locked away. My brother wrote the soundtrack for it. And for a game of that nature where it's very text-heavy, and the immersion is carried by visuals. So the as you're going through the game, you have like background paintings to help you visualize what's being told to you in terms of what's happening. The characters you recruit have little animations and they're there. And the way they're drawn emphasizes those, you know, sabotaging traits or whatever. So you're relying a lot on visuals and music to enrich the atmosphere. Your writing should do that. I hope I do that with my writing, but because you're not navigating this world in real time, it's essential that these two things line up with the, the tone you're trying to achieve. So what my brother did was his music 
was very tailored to what we were trying to achieve, which was an Arabian setting, kind of kooky, a little off kilter, eccentric, and with a tad kind of tad bit sinister as well, because ultimately, you know, everyone's dying around you and you've been swallowed. So somehow <laughs> he, he achieved that. And I think it adds a lot to the experience. Now, from a technical point of view, and this is a question I think he'd be better able to answer, you do have to find that balance between ambient noises and the music, how much of it is at the forefront. If we end up incorporating voice acting, which is something I'd love to do, how that comes into play as well. I think that's a universal consideration for any game. But to step back away from this and go into The Shepherd, which is a game uh, that is out there that I helped work on, the way music was approached on that game was that each of the regions you visit with your sheep has a different motif that reflects the obstacles you'll face along the way. So even though it's all desert, the defining elements of each of these regions are different. So you'll have one of these regions with a with an oasis as its centerpiece. So the music is a little more soothing, whereas another part will have all these mountains and it's very barren and it's inhabited by wolves and it's more rugged. So again, music is a good way of consolidating the thematic elements of a level or part of the experience. In terms of where music factors into storytelling, and again, I think this is going to depend a lot on the creative team. My my experience with video games is that the way they are constructed, though there are certain universal truths, when it comes to the storytelling, at least, there's no fixed way of doing it. It's going to change substantially from game to game, from studio to studio. So how music is incorporated into the storytelling there uh, will, I think, vary. And I know that some games, game studio developer teams, emphasize it more than others. There are certain games that are known for their exceptional scores, where they get full orchestras and they really invest a huge chunk into making that happen. And I don't know the reasons for it. I mean, I, I'm sure I could dig up interviews or something, but I think there's a there's a team called Square Enix. I think I'm saying that right. They produce a lot of games that are known for their terrific soundtracks. It's something they value for one reason or another. And it's universally considered to be a good move on their part. It's one of the reasons people love their games. They do cite the music as being a key part of that experience and that journey. So I, I don't know if I'm being as specific as you'd like. I hope I am. But again, it's a bit tricky for me to answer this because I actually don't have that much direct experience with this component. You answered my question, definitely. And the reason that I'm so interested in, in the sound aspect of it is partly because I think as, as human beings, we're very visual creatures mm. and our primary sense that we tap into is sight and doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that you see. When we write, we create a visual in our mind's eye, which is almost the same as seeing it, something on a film, almost better because it's different for every person as you take in the words. And the aspect of, of music and sound is interesting to me because when I listen to music, it takes me on an, an emotional journey. It helps me feel something. So when I watch a film and I hear any kind of music in the background, you know, we talked about this before Cogni in another episode where if I'm watching something scary and they ramp up the music and that helps the tension. Yeah. But even if there's a sad scene and there's a sad song playing, it comes back to how do we as human beings have certain associations with certain sounds, but also 
how we tap into our senses in a way that drives emotion. So I think every part of incorporating these different senses is how can I evoke a feeling and an atmosphere? How can I create something so immersive for the person who's taking that in that it's never overpowering, but always creating an alternate reality? that is so strong that it becomes your reality in that moment. Right. The way that you answered it was great because it does come down to what the game is and what you want that experience to be for the player. Just a, a really quick add-on. It's not specifically about music, but an increasingly important element of game design is, is sound design. Yeah. You can incorporate sound design into the gameplay and into the story in different ways. So there's a game called Alien Isolation, which is a spin-off of the Alien Horror franchise. And in the game, it's a first-person game. So you are, that means you're viewing the game world through the eyes of the protagonist. So as you control them, you're not seeing the character, you are the character. And the whole game, you are being stalked by the alien and you have, and it cannot be killed. You have to avoid it and set traps for it and do all sorts of things to avoid it. And part of the reason the game is as terrifying as it is, and the reason it works at all, is the sound design. They invested so much effort into the sound of its footsteps and the way it bounces off, you know, mm. metal versus, you know, whatever other surface and distance and snarls and the sound of flames and all these different things come together for you to actually make decisions based off of them. You know, you, you decide, okay, it is, I can be reasonably sure two rooms down based on sound alone. Mm -hmm. So that it's not strictly storytelling, but it is the story in motion, the story of you being stuck. Well, it is storytelling, right? Because yeah. storytelling is about how you can create a reality for somebody to experience in a way that is true really yeah. for them. Besides, we have to compliment sound. We are on a podcast. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that said, Courtney did have a request for later. So, but first we have a, a question about oh, your story. Beast. Wait, 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 wait. I, I actually have a review. So I do know what your story beast is. So I want to say this before you say it, because I know what it is and everyone's about to find out. And I love it. But my review is that you do have a Thanos voice and you are not like Thanos. So, heart of gold. Oh. <laughs> Five stars. I thought, I thought you were going to give the Story Beast a review, and I was like, oh, down. I, was I thought it was well, a review of Story Beast. Oh, well, okay. So, well, for our podcast or your Story Beast, because your story, well, all of it's five stars, right? So, <laughs> my experience being on your platform has also been five stars. Great. That's all we ask. Yeah. Good vibes. <laughs> we, Good vibes. we only ask for five stars. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if anyone wants to leave a review. <laughs> so. Okay, great. And I, I just felt like I had to say that. So anyway, Gabby, you may proceed. <laughs> well, I, I would like us to talk about your story beast. I am going to read it as you wrote it. I I love everything you saw in your form. <laughs> so uh, for, <laughs> for anyone uh, listening, we do put our legendaries up on our legendary page and we have some fun questions that we ask them. So please check it out because Faisal, uh, as you can tell, is great. Um, I love your favorite book, by the way. Anyway, so... Faisal's story beast is a scarab beetle in magical armor forged from steel and sapphires. The scarab's mythological symbolism in ancient Egypt speaks a lot to Faisal as a storyteller and the storytelling process. Moreover, the roots of this symbolism, and in parentheses, we have rolling piles of shit, also speaks to, I think, how every writer feels about their first drafts. So thank you. 
<laughs> well read. <laughs> yeah, well written. <laughs> Thank you. So, so yeah, what uh, what did you want to ask about the the story beast? Did you want me to kind of elaborate on why I came up with that? Yes, I I wanted to know how you identified with your story beast. Well, the, I'm going to begin with saying that this was a really interesting question that I didn't fully understand at first. Great, I know we had a lot of back and forth about this question. <laughs> but when, when I understood, I kind of struggled. Actually, I didn't want to just pick something at random just for the sake of answering it. I wanted to take it seriously, given that it's the name of your, your show, mm-hmm. right? So I, I wanted to give it its due. And then I remembered the, the first book I wrote that I later revised and then shelved, which at its core had a lot to do with Egyptian mythology. And there seemed, it seemed like a good opportunity because it was the first complete work to find something, some, some inspiration there. And it's still very dear to me, by the way, and I plan on revisiting it someday in the future. But the scarab beetle is tied to the Egyptian sun god and the path he would take uh, on his his little canoe from dawn, midday, dusk, and then into the underworld during the nighttime and the challenges he'd face along the way. And the reason the dung beetle symbolizes that, I think, is because it rolls balls of shit and it looked like, you know, the sun being... (laughs) pushed or whatever. And it, it became a holy symbol of protection, the scarab beetle in, in Egyptian mythology. And usually they're they're made out of, uh, I forget the name of the, the material, but it's like a blue stone. I don't know. I related to that in the sense that it feels very much like there are parallels between a storyteller's journey and that of the Egyptian sun god in the sense that you are undertaking this grueling journey that you overcome. So with the sun god, when he would go into the underworld at the end, he would always face off against a dark entity called a pep, which was symbolized as a snake. And unless it was an eclipse, apparently he would always triumph over it and then repeat it again, which very much feels like the process of a storyteller. You are in this cyclical pattern of creation and triumph, and then you have to do it all over again because it never really ends. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get the occasional eclipse where, where things fuck you up and, you know, but you still get back on the canoe and you do it all over again. So, and then just, just the idea of a, a beetle strenuously rolling a pile of shit, but it's still in service of something great for this beetle also kind of reminds me of the writer's journey. So I, I had to pick the scarab beetle and then the embellishments about steel and sapphire was just because I wanted it to be cool. It is cool. <laughs> I love that. It is. It's very cool. I All mean, right, I, would, I had you, I, I'm going to hand over to you for the last fun oh, question. The ultimate question? The ultimate question. Should I, be, should I be scared? We got, we did really well, I think so far. Should this last one be something I'm worried about? Or? This is, uh, oh, the, no, it's it already. Don't worry. It's okay. the hardest one yet. I don't, I don't know how this is going to go. What's your favorite snack? Okay. I don't remember what I wrote on the you wrote question. pumpkin bread. I, I remember. <laughs> Gabby. <laughs> okay, that's, that's what I was going to say now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Look, anything ginger, to be honest, any baked okay. good with ginger in it is a winner for me. Mm-hmm. I am a sucker for anything autumnal, right? Mm. So like pumpkin bread, pumpkin pie, gingerbread cookies, gingerbread, ginger, what, all of it, cinnamon. All that you stuff. You see, Cody, why we're friends. I do. I do. <laughs> Faisal, is, Faisal is an autumn boy, and I love that. I, I am. <laughs> I love autumn. It is absolutely my favorite time of year. And part of that is because it's universally great everywhere. So here, 
in in Saudi where it's hot and we don't have real seasons. Now is the time where the weather starts to finally mm. ease up. So I have positive associations here with that, but also just in my time in the States, it really stuck with me. I don't know. I just, I'm all about that October, November window and all the snacks that come with it. I love that. I'm actually, uh, this has been so great. I'm going to add you to my list of people that need to move closer to me. And then we can all <laughs> hang out. And Virginia has a great autumn vibe, just to say. Prepare yourself, Basil, okay, is what I'm know. saying. <laughs> Courtney is going to get on your case now. <laughs> Relentless. Relentless. But then let me ask you, Courtney, I have to, I have to ask because what follows is winter. And what's mm. Virginia winter like? Um... Tis cold, but not as cold as, shall we say, where Gabby is presently. <laughs> so we're not talking like below zero. Oh, oh no. I will say we had um, a, a less than desirable storm in January, but it was very... Um, I'm sorry, wait, don't you always have like flood warnings and closed bridges? No, no, no. And- I... My um, my mother's house is its own thing. Um, my house is fine. So anyway, <laughs> shout out, mom. Um, <laughs> OK, well, this has been so awesome. I really have so much to think about. And actually, I I am pretty sure I'm just going to write a bunch today. This has been so inspirational for me. I really appreciate everything that you've said here. And I really want to play that game so bad. <laughs> I'll I'll get on it. And I really appreciate the two of you having me here and giving me the opportunity to talk about the things I love doing with people who love doing very similar things and getting to meet you, Courtney, and getting to see Habiba, which is always a pleasure. And yeah, just it was a great, great time. It didn't feel like I was on a podcast. Just feels like we were hanging out. Oh, we were. And you're going to move to you're going to move to Virginia. Yeah, it's cool. (laughs) And I guess I'll be moving to Virginia. (laughs) I have a real quick question before we wrap up, though, because you referenced my favorite book on the questionnaire. I don't remember what I put down because there was a question about favorite author, I think, too. And it was very tough. Oh, very yes. Tough to pick one. <laughs> yes. Um, let me. Uh, so the Amulet of Smarkinant. Smarkinant? Samarkin? I think Samar- Samarkin? Samarkin. Oh, my gosh. I'm- this is the problem when you read a lot. You know a lot of words. You don't know how to pronounce any of the words. Yeah. Well, so I. That was always me as a kid. But I I remember reading those books when um, I was a wee child and I was actually really thinking about them recently. Um, I have a a different project that is stewing that is not related to that. But I was thinking about all of these books that I really loved growing up and why I loved them. And there's something about that book in particular that I think makes me feel clever because it has footnotes. And then also there's just this snarky character. And I I love um, also the historical roots, but make it magic. That is so fun. Uh, So there's so many things about that, that book that, Honestly, I would I would love to just have a whole episode talking about those books. Like, I, I think uh, it's a trilogy. Bring me on for it because it right. is a trilogy. I love the trilogy. It holds up even today as an adult. And the footnotes you mentioned, I have never since seen anything like it in terms of using those footnotes to break the fourth wall throughout the mm-hmm. entire story. Mm-hmm. Because the character, the snarky character you're referencing, is constantly engaging you, the reader, mm-hmm. as you're reading this book. It's very unlike anything I've I've yes. read before or since, or it's, it's really great. So if you do an episode on it. All right. I, well, and again, you are Thanos boys with heart of gold. You can come. <laughs> All right. 
Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope the two of you have a great day ahead. I know it's still pretty early, so enjoy or get a nap, whichever. Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Thank you. 